Well, today as we're proceeding in Matthew chapter 7, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see Jesus challenge his followers to pursue good gifts that our Heavenly Father wants to give. That is, we're to pursue them in, in prayer. And so today we're going to be challenged with two questions. Are we pursuing God's good gifts in prayer? And second, what kind of gifts are we pursuing? Are we pursuing worldly desires and praying for mere luxuries or comforts? Or are we praying for God's kingdom to come, our needs to be met, and for our sins to be forgiven? These are some of the good things we're going to learn that we should be praying for here today. Now, I want to begin in Matthew 7, 7 through 8, where Jesus is going to challenge us as to whether or not we're pursuing the Heavenly Father's hand in prayer. Notice what he says. He commands us, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. I first want you to see the three imperatives that I have highlighted in red, and each of those imperatives are commands of the church, that is, followers of Christ. And they are followed by three assurances. Now, let me put up the bullets here. I'm going to put up the actual Greek words behind the commands here. For ask, it's a tete. For seek, it's zetete. And for knock, it's cruete. Now, the one thing I want to point out with these terms, I want to pull up my pointer. Each of them is in the second person plural, meaning it is for the church. It is for us. It's for the followers of Christ. But I also want you to see that each of these verbs is in the present tense. And the reason that's significant is this ask, seek, and knock is the idea of seeking God in prayer. And it is something that you and I are to do, not just once, but continuously. The present tense in Greek doesn't just mean it's happening now. The emphasis, because it's an aspectual language, is on ongoing action. So it's the idea that we're to continuously ask, seek, and knock in prayer the good things of God. We don't just do it once or twice. We do it our whole Christian life. Now, the second thing I want to point out is notice it's an active voice. We are to ask, we are to seek, and we are to knock and pursue God in prayer. But I want you to realize in our application I'll be showing you from Romans chapter 3, verse 11, that the unregenerate don't seek after God. And so the fact that this is commanded of us, we have to know that this is only something believers can do. Why? Because we have a regenerated heart by the Spirit. That's how we came to faith. And we are the ones, therefore, who uniquely can ask, seek, and knock. The other thing I want to point out here is the assonance. Notice the sounding, eate, zeate, cruete. That assonance of that sound is to crescendo in the Greek, driving you to the importance of seeking after God in prayer. It's like a crescendo effect. And I want you to note the three assurances that we have after the commands to ask, seek, and knock. In fact, they're reiterated in verse 8, so we'll see in verse 7. Notice after ask, he says, and it will be given to you. This is, in fact, a divine passive. Our Heavenly Father longs to give us the good gifts in this life, but one day, even unto eternity. He longs to and He will. Notice the second assurance. After we seek, He says, you will find. And I think here the implication is that you will find just how great your Heavenly Father is. 
you'll find exactly how great his care is for you if you will seek him earnestly in prayer. Notice the idea of knocking. It will be open to you. Again, a divine passive. Our Heavenly Father really longs to open the storehouse of his blessings for his people. Now, as we proceed in this section, what Jesus is doing is he's depicting our Heavenly Father as the ultimate and perfect parent who omnipotently is able to provide for his people. And I want you to think about what a huge blessing it is that you and I, by faith in Christ, belong to the family of God. Jesus, who is the Son, sheds his blood, atones for our sins, so that you and I can be adopted sons and daughters that uniquely have access to the throne of grace. I want you to consider what other world religion has this kind of intimacy. Think about Islam for just a moment. In Islam, remember Muhammad, out of the 360 gods that they worshipped in Mecca, he chose one, the moon god. Why? Because he wanted to be a monotheist like the Jews. But Allah, the god that he chose, by the way, it's actually Nana Sin was the original name for it. It's a moon god. And that's why if you see on the Islamic flag, there'll be a crescent moon. I believe that in their eschatology, if they take over the world, that's when the the moon becomes full on the flag. That's their goal. But in Islam, God is not imminent. He is merely transcendent. And so there isn't this kind of tender relationship with a heavenly father who longs to do good to you in a relationship through prayer. Think about the Eastern religions. In the Eastern religions, people have taken God and they've put him in the creation. The creation is God. Well, does the creation or the universe care for you like the Holy One of Israel? No. And think about our friends and neighbors in Judaism. We are perhaps closest to them. They share the same Old Testament. But because they don't have Christ, because they've rejected him, they don't have atonement for their sins, and therefore they are not sons and daughters. Being sons and daughters is uniquely yours through faith in Christ, and therefore you are the ones who can ask, who can seek, and who can knock, and will find the good things of God. It is reserved for the people of God through faith in Christ. Now, as we continue in the next two verses here, Jesus is going to use this parental relationship with a child to press home his point. Notice he continues in verses 9 through 10. He says, Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Now notice again these rhetorical questions have an obvious answer. Ask the question, if your son asks for a loaf, are you going to give him a stone? What's the obvious answer? Well, of course you won't. And if your son asks for a fish, you're certainly not going to give him a snake, are you? Well, of course you wouldn't do that. And so what Jesus is using is the normal relationship between a father and a son that occurs in our world. Now, we can all think of examples where perhaps a father is abusive or doesn't care and neglects for his children. But Jesus is assuming the vast majority of people will care for their children. Uh, For many years, I've taught at different times a logic course, and in it we'll talk about different syllogisms. And inevitably, you'll always talk about all horses 
have four legs or all horses are four legged creature creatures. Well, somebody, of course, will say, well, yeah, they'll raise their hand. Well, my uncle knows a guy who had a colt and it came out with three legs. Well, that's what's called an abnormality. It's not normal. Normally, horses are four legged creatures and normally even sinful human beings love and long to give good gifts to their children. That's Jesus' point. And from that, Jesus is going to build off of this parent-child relationship a lesser to greater argument. If you and I, lesser evil, sinful people, are willing to give, give good gifts, how much more will the sinless, perfect, heavenly Father be willing to give good gifts? That's the argument here in Matthew seven eleven. Notice Jesus says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, dear ones, I wanted you to notice here in red, this is the lesser. Notice there's two parts I want you to look at. Notice he says, if you then being evil, the you here is second person plural. And I only mention that because all humans This is referring to apart from Christ. Obviously, Jesus is addressing his followers. But if you and I are evil, how much more those who are not his followers? In other words, every human being is evil apart from Christ. Now, does that mean Jesus is not human? No, he's truly human and truly God in one person. He is the unique one. Does everyone know in the Bible where it says that Jesus is the only begotten? I don't like the term begotten because it makes it seem that he came into existence. The term in Greek is monogenes, and it's best rendered, in my opinion, the unique one, the one of a kind. He is the sinless one, truly human, truly God in one person. There's none like him, and therefore he stands exempt from this charge. It's you and I who are the ones being evil. Now, the being evil, that's a present participle. It's the assessment of who we are. Here, Jesus is very clearly teaching the universal sinfulness of mankind. And what I'm going to do in our application is I'm going to show you that every person is indeed born a sinner due to the fall of Adam in the garden. The reason we're going to focus on this is because Jesus is asserting this. I think one of the essential doctrines for every Christian to understand is the depravity of of man in original sin. If we don't understand that doctrine, someday later in life, you'll end up in some form of error. And so we'll be talking about that. But notice again, the lesser to greater that Jesus is building on. If you and I, the lesser, know how to give good gifts, how much more the Heavenly Father, how much more does He know how to give good gifts? The one who is untainted with any sin the one who is without spot and blemish. Now, the obvious answer, of course, is God will give us the good gifts. God has promised that he will, in fact, answer our prayers and give only, only what is good for us. And so today you and I are going to learn that this good that he wants to do for us is that in prayer, God is going to answer in such a way where the gifts that he gives are designed to conform us to the image of the Son. That's the ultimate goal that God has for us. We're going to read about that in Romans 8:29. that you and I have been predestined. That is God's elect 
to be conformed to the image of the son, meaning the goal of God is to get us into a glorious kingdom with his son so that you and I will be partakers of a resurrection unto everlasting life. All of the gifts that he gives are designed for that purpose. They're not designed to make this life always easier now or for luxury here and now. The good gifts that God wants to give are designed to conform us to the image of his son. Now, let's come to some applications from this text. I have two points for you this morning. Number one, I want to play off of that phrase, you being evil in Jesus' assessment of us as sinners. I think we must know that all humans are born sinners because of the fall of Adam. If we don't get this doctrine right, we're going to be out in left field in other areas of theology some point in our life. We have to get this right. Number two, we should, through prayer, continuously seek God's gifts for our transformation during our earthly lives. We are going to wrestle with what are these good things that we should pursue in asking, seeking, and knocking in prayer. Okay, so let's begin number one today. Jesus said in Matthew 7:11 that all humans are evil. And he is teaching human depravity and original sin. And I believe that this is an essential doctrine for every Christian to understand. If you and I don't understand original sin, you and I will not see salvation as a complete work of God. We will think that we have added something to it, and therefore we will detract from his glory, and we will engage in some form of error in our lives theologically. Now, I also want to mention here that some have claimed that this doctrine of original sin is something that's really only defined in the New Testament. But I'm going to show you right away that that's not the case. In fact, notice what David here said. David wrote Psalm 51, I believe, as he was repenting of his sin with Bathsheba. Remember, he took her to be his wife and sent her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to the front to die in battle so he could steal his wife. And so here I believe David is repenting. And notice what he admits to the Lord. Psalm 51, 5, he says, Behold... I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The first thing I want to point out in this text is you have something called synonymous parallelism. And that simply is a fancy way of saying both clauses say the same thing. In other words, being brought forth in iniquity is really synonymous with being conceived in sin in the mother's womb. The next point I want to make in this text is, ironically, this passage shows that human life begins at conception. Now, that's not my point here, but follow the logic. Think about this phrase, and in sin my mother conceived me. David is saying he was conceived in sin. Let me ask the question, are animal sinners? No. I remember one time I was on my porch or on my deck, and the phone rang and ran in. A squirrel stole my apple. Now, I didn't start cursing out the squirrel and saying, you wretched sinner, and say, oh, maybe the Lord will save him and bring him to faith or something. No, animals aren't sinners. Okay, so if he's conceived a sinner, what must he be in order to be a sinner at conception? A human. He's a human. And so he's a human at conception. The Bible teaches human beings are human beings from conception because only human beings are sinners. And we know this is a sinner from conception. That's the logic. Now, this, of course, means then that David is a sinner like the rest of us. And what this is teaching is that you and I sin 
because we are born sinners, not simply that we are sinners because we sin, although here I'm certainly not trying to absolve personal responsibility from us. But I'm simply trying to explain the predicament we find ourselves in. Now, lest we think this is only true of David, notice what David says of all other people. Psalm 58.3, he says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. It's not just David. It's universal. All human beings are born sinners. Now, just how bad is our sin nature? How bad is it? How depraved are we? Well, there has been four basic views in evangelicalism for many years. Let me share them with you. The first view on original sin and the result of original sin from Adam to us is called Pelagianism. That comes from a British monk called, his name was Pelagius. If you recall in church history, he was the one who debated with Augustine. Now, what Pelagius taught was that human beings are untouched by original sin to the point where we have complete ability. We have complete ability to do the good that God commands. We are untainted by any form of original sin. So if God commands us to believe, we can believe. If he commands us to obey, we can obey. That's Pelagianism and it's heresy. Okay, now the second view that we should be aware of is semi-Pelagian. In the semi-Pelagian view, yes, humans are tainted by original sin, but we still have the ability to obey the commands of God, to do the good that God commands, meaning to believe and obey. The third view, and again, that's heretical too, in my opinion, the third view is Arminian. That's not, by the way, a reference to the nation of Armenia, but followers of Jacob Arminius who had opposed Calvinism. Now, what Arminius taught was that, yes, humans are so influenced by original sin from Adam that we really are unable to do the good that God commands. And so that sounds good, but where Arminius fell off the wagon, in my opinion, and is unbiblical, is he taught that human beings, meaning every one of us, is given something called prevenient grace. What prevenient simply means first. A first grace which enables all of us to do the good that God commands, to believe and obey. And therefore, if someone believes and someone doesn't, it's simply based on their choice again. Dear ones, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that God gives a first grace to every single human being which nullifies the effects of original sin. In fact, we're going to learn later in Matthew 13:11. remember Jesus is answering that question. Remember the disciples asked, hey, Jesus, why do you tell everybody outside of us parables? But then you pull us aside and tell us plainly what they mean. And Jesus says, because to you, it has been given the knowledge of the kingdom of God but to them it has not been given. The term given there, didomi, it's a divine passive. And so the idea then is that some have been given the knowledge of the kingdom, some have been enabled to believe, but others haven't. If provenient grace were true, it would be given to everyone, not just to some. So the biblical conception sometimes is referred to the Calvinist position. By the way, we are not Calvinists here in the sense that we follow Calvin's eschatology 
and his ecclesiology and other things. But we do believe that he's right on this, that, yes, all human beings, as a result of Adam's sin, are spiritually dead. And we are unable to do the good that God commands, either by faith or by by faith and also by doing what God commands. We can't do it. We need regeneration. So the only way that any of us can do that which God pleases God is by being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so this is why Jesus will say, for example, in John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This is why it says in 1 Corinthians 12:3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me show some texts that show this desperate condition that we are in. Notice here what Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 11. By the way, he's citing here from Psalm 14, by and large. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Now, first of all, notice what he says here in the first section read, where he says there is none righteous. That's exactly Jesus' assessment today in Matthew 7:11. You are all being evil. Are you then being evil? We are all sinners. It's universal. How many people are sinners? Everyone. Everyone is a sinner before God. And that's the condition of all of us. Now, what's the result of this? Well, notice the second read. He says that there is none who seeks for God. Now, what's interesting is that term seeks is the same term that Jesus used today when he commanded us to ask, seek and knock. So Jesus commands us to seek God. But here it says in our sinful condition, none seek after him. So we have what we would call an apparent contradiction where Jesus is commanding us to do something we can't do. And that's why I said earlier that seeking God in prayer is only something that the believer can do. Because we've had a regenerated heart that's been made alive. Think about being spiritually dead. If you're dead spiritually... This is why Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You don't have to be born again if you're already alive. What does he mean by being born again or born from above? He means that we have a heart that's changed so that we can seek after God. So that's why the seeking, asking, and knocking in prayer is something only a regenerate believer can do. That's the idea. And this is why... When we look at the Bible, it's not we as lost sinners who are seeking for Christ, but rather it's he who seeks for us. Luke 19.10, Jesus says that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. John 15.16, Jesus says of his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Why? Because truth be told, left her own devices, dead sinners in Adam cannot seek for him. They do not seek for him. And this should have been the death knell of the seeker-sensitive movement. The seeker-sensitive movement that devastated the church is built for a category of people that don't exist. That's the truth of it. Now, let's check another passage where here Paul says much the same thing very succinctly. Ephesians 2.1. Notice here Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, I sometimes get paid to point out the obvious. Notice when Paul says, 
you were dead. Paul cannot be saying that you are physically dead. Otherwise, you wouldn't be hearing me and you wouldn't be reading this. Got it? So it's not physical death. What kind of death is it? It's spiritual death. Spiritually dead people cannot believe or obey, and we are alienated or separated from God. That's the point that he's making. So can dead men and women spiritually do that which is pleasing to God? Absolutely not. And so this is essential for us to understand. Let me explain why. You think, I think in evangel, the evangelical world, the average conception that the average evangelical has of salvation is it's like a shipwreck. I've mentioned this before. And the average evangelical thinks that all of us as sinners are in the shipwreck of life and we're flailing about drowning in the ocean. And Jesus comes by in the lifeboat and he reaches down for us. And if we will reach up and meet him halfway or part of the way, he will save us and pull us into the boat by faith. But dear ones, that is not what the Bible is teaching. We are not drowning. We are already dead. Yes, we're all on the Titanic, but we've all already died and our lifeless corpses spiritually are floating in the water. And the way Jesus saves is, yes, he comes by in the lifeboat. But by his power and grace alone, he has to haul our lifeless corpses into the boat and by the spirit breathe life into us, enabling us to believe and to be saved. That's the biblical conception of salvation. Now, is there a New Testament passage that clearly teaches this condition of being spiritually dead is as a result of Adam's sin in the garden? There actually is. It's found in Romans 5, 12 through 19. It's found elsewhere, but that's the most succinct passage. So if you want to read the Bible tonight, read Romans 5, 12 through 19. For our purposes, we're going to look at verse 12. I want you to notice here what Paul says. He has four major points. Notice he says, therefore, just as through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, four points. Let's go in order. Number one, notice that through the one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. So one man brought sin into the world. Part one. Part two. Death, death came through that sin. Now, what kind of death is being referred to here? Well, both physical death, but also what's being emphasized here, I think, is spiritual death. Remember, Adam didn't physically die the moment he rebelled, but he was separated and alienated from God. So here, of course, it's both physical death, but it's, I think spiritual death is being accentuated. Third part, so death spread to all men. Fourth part, because all sinned. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of issue with this rendering of because. It actually comes from a preposition and a relative pronoun put together, F-ho. The preposition epi normally means upon. The relative pronoun would normally be which. So literally, it would be upon which. And I really have an issue with the five usages of this in the New Testament being rendered because. Let me give you one example. We don't have time to look at all of them, but turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts 7.33. Please turn your Bibles to Acts 7.33, and I'll show you where because 
is not a viable option. Again, Acts 7.33, as you're turning there, remember, this is Stephen, who's really recounting the salvific history of Israel before the leadership of Israel, before the Sanhedrin. This, of course, is where they end up stoning him. Acts 7.33, notice here, he's recounting God and his address of Moses at the burning bush. Acts 7.33, Stephen says, But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place, now here's Epiho, place on which you are standing is holy ground. Does everyone see the on which or upon which, depending on your version? That's the same phrase that we have here. Now, would it make any sense to say, take off the sandals from your feet for the place because you are standing is holy ground? Well, of course it doesn't. And what I'll show, I'll do this sometime at a Sunday school because is not a good rendering of any of the five instances of epiho in the New Testament or epho. So, and by the way, I'm not the only one. Who, if I was the only one who saw this, I would keep it to myself. But the great scholar in the book of Romans, Thomas Schreiner, sees this the same way. Let me show you the better rendering. By the way, before I move off of it, notice the underlying portion. What this would be saying in this rendering with because is that death came to all men because we sin. Sin is the re, is what brings about spiritual death. And that is true. But there's a better rendering. Let me read this. Romans 5.12. We're going to render epiho in a better way. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men on the basis of which all sinned. Notice in this rendering in the underline, the reason that we have all sinned is because we're spiritually dead. Up here, death comes because we sinned. I don't think that that's Paul's point at all. Paul's point is that you and I have all sinned because we're spiritually dead in Adam. That's the point that he's making. Brothers and sisters, you and I are spiritually dead, and therefore salvation is completely a work of God, completely by his grace. Even the faith that we have is given to us by him. Now, today in the passage that we were studying, the significance of this is that Jesus was saying to us, if you wretched sinners by nature are willing to give good gifts to your children, how much more is the Holy One of Israel going to give you good gifts? And of course, he longs to give us good gifts in every way. Now, that leads me to the main point, our second application point that Jesus promised that our Heavenly Father can be trusted to give us good gifts. Now, the question we have to wrestle with are, what are these good gifts? Jesus does not specify in the text in Matthew 7. So we have to do some detective work and say, well, what are these good gifts that we should be asking, seeking, and knocking for in prayer? Now, let me give you a hint. I mentioned earlier that these gifts are all designed by God to ensure that you and I will be conformed to the image of the Son. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of the Son? That we would persevere by faith, enter into a glorious kingdom, and have a resurrected body unto everlasting life. That's the goal of the gifts. And we know from Romans 8:28, God says that He causes all things to work for the good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. We know all these gifts are for that reason. 
Now, let me give you a hint as to what these good gifts are. We'll start building the case here. Notice Matthew 7, 11. This is what we looked at today. Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Dear ones, there is a parallel passage in Luke. Luke saying the very same thing, except he changes the good with the Holy Spirit. Notice Luke eleven thirteen. He says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, why does Luke say Holy Spirit and Matthew say what is good? Is there a contradiction? Well, let me reply by saying, remember, Jesus had a three-year ministry. And I believe a lot of these sayings that he gave us were given multiple times with slight variances and accentuating different different parts that were important. So this could have been said multiple times. We know that, for example, in eschatology, when you look at Luke 17, Jesus is teaching... The same thing that we see in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, but at a different setting. So just like if you and I sit under Bob for three years, you'll hear us say the same thing multiple times. Redundancy, why? Every teacher has to do it. As a good coach, you ever have a good coach who told you something once and then just said, oh, that's enough? No, they have to drive it home time and time again. So I think more than likely this was taught on numerous occasions. Well, here... Luke wants to focus on the Holy Spirit because he is the one who's going to show us the fulfillment of this happens at Pentecost. That indeed, for the people of God, the Holy Spirit comes. Here, Matthew is accentuating what is good, namely gifts that you and I can pursue that God longs to give. But I do think it's related to what the Spirit does for us. And so I want to build that case. Turn your Bibles. Again, we're doing some detective work. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4, 8. Please turn your Bibles there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. And the reason I want you to turn there is I'm going to show you at Jesus' ascension, he is depicted as giving us gifts. The greatest gift is the Holy Spirit. So as you're turning to Ephesians 4, 8, I want you to think of this metaphor. Think of Jesus as this great bridegroom. The ultimate bridegroom And if you recall the ancient Israelite wedding, when a groom would leave his bride to go prepare a place at his father's house for her, when he would leave, he would send her gifts. So Jesus, the great bridegroom, is ascending to prepare a place for us in the father's house. And Ephesians 4, 8 will make the point, he gave us gifts. The greatest being the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit dispensed other gifts. Notice Ephesians 4, 8. Here Paul cites from Psalm 68, 18. Therefore, it says, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. Stop there. What that is, is this victory over the demonic realm that Jesus expresses in his ascension. But notice right after that, again, still applying Psalm 68, 18 to him, to Jesus. It says, and he gave gifts to men. Again, this great bridegroom gives us gifts. The greatest gift ever given was the Holy Spirit and subsequent gifts from there. Now, skip down to Ephesians 4.11. What's the nature of these gifts? Well, they're the same gifts that we see in 1 Corinthians 12. Notice verse 11. He gave some as apostles, 
and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For what reason? Notice verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The point of giving those good gifts is that you and I would be conformed to the image of the Son. That you and I would reach maturity and that we would persevere. And so the point of the gifts that God gives is obviously for our good. Now, does this mean then you and I are to pursue in prayer the sending of apostles and prophets? No, he's already done that. Are we to pursue the sending of pastors and teachers? No, he's done that. But there are spiritual gifts that we are to pursue, not so says Eric Dalma, so says the Apostle Paul, who authoritatively speaks for Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see that. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12.31. 1 Corinthians 12.31. Here Paul talks about us earnestly desiring and really pursuing gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.31. Please turn your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians 12.31, here Paul had been talking about the gifts from the Spirit. And notice what he says here in 1 Corinthians 12.31. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he goes on to say, and I will show you still a more excellent way. That's all about chapter 13 in love. But notice when he says, earnestly desire the, greatest, the greater gifts. The term for earnestly desire, zelo, is where we get our term zealous. We are to be zealous and pursue the greater gifts. Now, what are the greater gifts that Paul is referring to? Well, he tells us. Remember, chapter 13 is a parenthesis about love. If you don't love, you may have all the gifts in the world, but if you don't love, you're nothing more than a resounding gong. So then he gets to chapter 14 and he comes back to the gifts. Skip down to chapter 14, verse 1. He defines it. Notice he says, pursue love yet earnestly desire, same terms, spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, Bob has written a great Critical Issues commentary article on prophecy, and what Bob shows, I think, very powerfully, is that prophecy here is not in the sense of you and I being prophets who are giving new revelations as if we're adding to Scripture, but it's prophecy in the functional sense of giving understanding, implications, and applications from Scripture. That's something that you and I should pursue. The understanding of Scripture, or let's put it very succinctly, biblical wisdom, what it means, how it applies. That's something that we all should pursue. And that is something that, in fact, in James 1.5, James says, if any you lacks wisdom... If any of you lacks wisdom, what kind of wisdom? The wisdom so that you can go on Jeopardy and win? The wisdom so that you can go on the Wheel of Fortune and be the big winner and go to Hawaii? What kind of wisdom? So that you'll know which NFL team's going to win the Super Bowl? No, it's biblical wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Dear ones, I think that one of the things that we are to pursue 
if you look at the biblical data, is biblical wisdom. Asking God to help us to understand the scriptures and to apply them to our lives in the lives of others. You and I are called in Romans chapter 12 to not be conformed to the image of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How are we transformed into the image of the Son? It's through our mind and it's through the Scriptures. James 1.5 says, if you don't have wisdom, ask in prayer and God will help you. God will help you understand and relate the Scriptures to yourself and also those in your life. Think about, dear ones, Jesus did not promise that God would give us anything we wanted in prayer, but that he would give us the good things. If my son ever asked me, I'll give you an example, if he ever asked me for a three-wheeler, it's not that I don't want my son to have fun, but I know three-wheelers, if you go up a hill that's steep, it'll flip over. I'm not putting you down. Maybe some of you out there gave your son or daughter a three-wheeler, and if they survived, great. I'm not putting you down. But I wouldn't do that to him because I know the track record of three-wheelers. He may fall back and kill himself. So even though he wants it, I'm not giving it to him because I don't think it would be for his good. And what the Scriptures are very clear is that you and I often ask for things that aren't for our good. The good gifts that we are to pursue are so that you and I would be conformed to the image of the Son. Think of it this way. We often as humans pray for things that simply make life easier here and now for luxuries or comforts. Notice what James says, James 4, 2 through 3. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Notice James rebukes his audience, and it would be filled with believers, because they ask with wrong motives. Why are they asking with wrong motives? Because they want to have their pleasures met. The term for pleasures there, by the way, it's not necessarily um, perhaps the immoral sexual pleasures that may come to mind in, in the sinful context, but rather it can be any form of pleasure in this world that may be innocuous in and of itself. But the idea is when one's focus is upon that and only that, it detracts from the kingdom. It, it's, it, in other words, it's a neutral term. In fact, it's used. Jot this down if you're a note taker. 2 Timothy 3, 4. Here Paul talks about the false teacher that are treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And in so many times I know in my own life, especially as a new believer, I do remember praying for those things that made my life better here and now, but weren't for the good of conforming me to the image of the Son. If you're praying for the next new iPhone or the Cadillac rather than the Chevy, are you not praying for your greeds rather than your needs? Now, again, I'm not saying that God can't say or can't give those things, that he won't grant them. But what we can know is what we are to pray for are the good things that conform us to the image of the Son. Turn your Bibles to Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26, please turn your Bibles there. I'm going to show you the predicament we find ourselves in that we don't even know how to pray as we ought. 
That's the assessment of us. Romans 8.26. Please turn your Bibles there. I'm going to link this to our text here in James that we pray with wrong motives for our pleasures, namely our greeds rather than our needs. Romans 8.26. Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Stop there. What an assessment of us. We don't even know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit even has to modify our prayer life. Lord, they don't need that. They need this. He's interceding for us. So the Bible is clear that some things we pray for, dear ones, God will say no all for our good. But when we do pray for the good things, he will use them to conform us to the image of his son. Now, we were given a model of prayer by the Lord one chapter earlier. And I think it behooves us to look at Jesus' model prayer and to use that as a model for ourselves. What should we be praying for? Well, let's look at what he prayed for. Remember, he began saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He prayed that God's name would be glorified. Second, he prayed that God's kingdom would come. Third, he prayed that God's will would be done. Remember, on earth as it is in heaven. So the first three items in Jesus' model prayer are God-centered on God having a name that is glorified, his coming kingdom and his will being done. It was God-centered. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Now, the next three are human-centered. Give us our daily bread. There's our needs, not our greeds, not the next new iPhone, perhaps, or the Cadillac rather than the Chevy in the garage, but our needs. And then he went on to forgive us our sins. That's the greatest need ultimately that we have as we forgive others. And then keep us from temptation so that we won't rebel, so that we will be conformed to the image of the Son, that we will walk on the straight and narrow, that you and I will enter into this glorious kingdom, that you and I will be partakers of the resurrection unto everlasting life. These are the good things that we are to be praying for. Again, not necessarily the next cell phone model from Apple or the Cadillac rather than the Chevy. Now, as I say this, this does not mean that we can't pray for health concerns. That would be under the needs. That's a great need for many people, and we can pray for those things. The point is we pray for our needs, not our greeds. And so, dear ones, we have this unique privilege as sons and daughters belonging to Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, you and I can pray to glorify God, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done, that our needs and the needs of our brothers and sisters would be met, not our greeds but our needs, that we would be spared from temptation, and that we'd be delivered from sinning and rebelling against God. These are the many good things that you and I can pray for, and we can know That because we belong to Christ, we belong to a great heavenly father who longs to give us these good things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you do give us good things. We thank you, Lord, that you long to bless us 
and to preserve us and keep us on the straight and narrow path so that we will become partakers of the glories with Christ, that we would be conformed to his image and one day see you as you truly are, that one day we would no longer rebel against you and that we'd be the people that you've designed us to be in Christ. We thank you for these things, Lord. I do pray that we'd be a people who ask, seek, and knock in prayer and pursue your hand. I pray also for our time in the holiday season as a people. I pray, Lord, that you give us ample opportunity to proclaim your gospel to coworkers, to family members and friends who don't know you. I pray, Lord, that you would open opportunities for us. Give us boldness in the gospel upon our lips. Prepare hearts for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.